Good afternoon, you're on the panel. RNZ National, Dean Hall and Joe McCarroll with me, Wallace Chapman. Nice to have the company. After just five hours, the Russia sanctions bill was passed last night with support from all political parties in New Zealand's parliament. So, for example, the act could be used to stop the purchase of a sale of property, the movement of ships and planes in New Zealand's waters or airspace and stopping the movement of money. Meanwhile, the news just keeps getting worse out of Ukraine. The Ukrainian city of Mariupol has been bombarded where people face uh, a lack of basic necessities and a strike on a maternity hospital has wounded several people. It is now so dangerous to venture out. The authorities have texted citizens in Mariupol urging people to just leave the dead outside. Natalia Sharbin is a professor at the University of Canterbury, president of the Ukrainian Studies Association of Australia and New Zealand, also worked at the Chikazi National University of Ukraine. Natalia is with us now. Kia ora, welcome to the programme. Kia ora, Wallace. First, just on those sanctions passed last night in New Zealand's parliament, uh, the right thing for us to do? Um. Well, I have to tell you that if you look at the reactions of the world press, uh, they're talking about groundbreaking sanctions, historical step of New Zealand, that's a major shift in New Zealand foreign policy. And um, I share these views. I think that we are witnessing at the moment a major event in the world history and international relations are changing dramatically. And um, this step by New Zealand is a very brave step. And um, yeah, I think it's something we could talk more, but I think it's very much in parallel with what New Zealanders call small but brave, punching Mm. above its weight. And I think we see an example of that. Natalia, I understand uh, your parents uh, have just come out of uh, Ukraine and it took some time for your parents to get out of Ukraine. How are they now? Where are they now? Oh, thank you for asking. Yes, my parents, uh, my father is an academic, my mom is a teacher. They didn't want to leave Ukraine and uh, the most immediate family, me and my sister, live outside of Ukraine. We were very worried. And of course, when military action started and the bombardments of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, started. We were very worried. My town, Cherkasy, is only two and a half hours by car from Kiev. So it took them almost four and a half days to cross Ukraine. Ukraine is a big country, even from the center of Ukraine, where we are, to the western border. And then, of course, they were um, in, in a long line, 70 hours in the line, which was moving incrementally, but you couldn't leave the line. You couldn't stop because mm. the line has been moving. They crossed uh, the Polish border, and at the moment, they're in safety with my sister in the United States. So it was a bit of relief, but I keep reading the news, and the news is devastating. This must have been excruciating for you to watch and go through, not just with your own parents there in this, uh, you know, the Chikazi two hours out of uh, Kiev, but do you have other family and friends there now? Yes, of course. I have Hmm. my classmates, my friends, um, my uncle and my cousin. So our family is not very big. Uh, My uncle and my cousin who live in Western Ukraine and Lviv, they chose not to leave. Lots of people choose not to go, either because uh, they cannot due to physical circumstances, they're not well, or they have to take care of the elderly relatives, they will not leave them. Um, There are different stories. The internet still works, and um, in, in, in 
parts, for most parts of Ukraine, of course, Mariupol, you mentioned it before, has a different story to it. There are no connections to people. And, you know, I'm in touch with them and my parents are in touch with their friends and the stories. Yeah, this, it's not the story of Ukraine I remember and like to tell people here in New Zealand. We have a panel with us, uh, Natalia. Let's uh, go to them. They might jump in with a question or a thought, comment. Uh, Joe McCarroll, you first. Well, it, it's not so much a question. I guess it just, mm. um, you know, my support to you, Natalia, and anyone else in New Zealand or anywhere who is in that position of having their family so far away. Um, I think this is, uh, it's unbelievable. Like my mind will not really grasp the situation that we're seeing unfold. Um, and so, you know, my my Araha is with you. Thank you. Can, can you, I guess you can relate to that, Natalia. We had uh, Gentleman McCall on the program a week and a half ago. Uh, and, you know, he, he's, He's from Odessa, uh, the 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 port the port city of Odessa, and he just said, "Look, I've been walking around all day in a shock. I just can't believe that this is happening to my city." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's not like you know we are connected to many cities and many places in Ukraine. You, you, I, I studied in Kiev. I worked in Kiev. My relatives are in Lviv and I traveled to Odessa and I've been to Nikolaev and just listening to the names and seeing the images of destroyed beautiful cities of infrastructure lying in tatters. Just recently the latest program in Ukraine was to rebuild the roads that President Zelensky's latest policy was to have wonderful roads connecting the cities. Many of them are destroyed or they've been bombarded in different sections, infrastructure for flying or you know, railway stations. But this is this is painful, but it's not you know, it's not that important. The most important is people and safety of people. And that's why the support of the world and kindness of the world in support of Ukraine have been really overwhelming. And my parents and their uneasy trip from Ukraine to Poland, they saw Western Ukrainian people feeding um, the travelers who haven't slept for 70 hours with warm tea and soups and, and sandwiches, Polish people providing help with medical and free SIM cards and refugee advice, no toll payments on the roads, free train rides in Poland and Germany. Suddenly we're talking about war, but I want to stress several key points, and one of them is actually kindness, kindness in Ukraine and kindness of our uh, supporters around the world, including New Zealand. Dean? Uh, Really, the only thing I wanted to add was to build on that kindness thing. I I know it's really easy for people to feel really overwhelmed coming off the back of COVID that, you know, there's this, uh, there's this, this war going on that we'd all hoped and thought wasn't possible. Uh, But actually, the Ukraine government has a really good link about how you can help um, and basically that, that can include everything from donating uh, donating money through to even just spreading the word or, or putting some pressure on on your politicians, uh, you know, to get out there and, and help. Uh, so I, I think that that's a really good way if people are feeling a bit powerless, and I think it makes a real difference just on that kindness front. And, and time is just, it's of the essence, right? Like time yeah. is very critical in this. It's not something that, uh, you know, we could just sit on our hands for months, and I think that's where everyone wants to see this, you know, sanctions and everything we can do on that humanitarian front happen as quick as possible. Absolutely. And I just want to add very quickly that New Zealand already did many things, uh, 
prime minister said, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, opening the parliament kitchen. Two million New Zealand dollars in humanitarian aid already gone to Ukraine. I'm in Christchurch, and you go and see huge billboards with Ukrainian flag. When was the last time everybody talked about Ukraine and New Zealand? And that and rallies in New Zealand, people going and trying to express. So it's from the nation to going to rallies. And, of course, the sanctions, uh, Russian Sanctions Act. It's sort of everybody does a little bit, and I think altogether it counts. Because mm. it is about certain principles and standing together. Before you go, Natalia, I just want to ask you about your hometown, Jakarzy. Um, do, do you know Do you know what's happening there? Yes, yes. Um, at the moment, there are uh, rockets and missiles flying above it uh, towards Kiev. Uh, people are evacuating to the bomb shelters two, three times a day. Shelters are cold. It's winter in Ukraine, minus six, minus, and it's expecting worse, uh, if you can say, the, the weather will deteriorate soon. So some food supplies are getting less and pharmacies getting less stocked. Um, people are working hard. Um, all Everybody's contributing and um, people taking care of each other. I think that's the most important. I think one word I would like to say, it's spirited. Ukraine is resilient, resistant and spirited. And I think it's still there. And when I talk to people, I can hear it. Pleasure to have you on, Natalia. I appreciate it. Thank you. That is. Thank you both. Natalia Sharbin, professor at uh, the University of Canterbury, uh, worked at Jakarzy National University, Ukraine, and Ukrainian. It is 16 past four, the panel, uh, NZ National. As thousands of Kiwis continue to get Omicron every day, those numbers make can feel very unsettling. The daily number of new community cases dropped slightly today to 21,015 cases. But the number of people in hospital with the coronavirus continues to soar, rising to 845 today. Now, by now, uh, most of us know someone with COVID or have perhaps had or have had COVID ourselves. But should we treat Omicron as an inevitability that we are all going to get the virus? Dr. David Welch is a senior lecturer in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Auckland. Dr. Welch, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. And this is really kind of the water cooler chat, if you like, or or, or, or at least a general sentiment that is going around, we're talking about it, uh, is that uh, we can't avoid this virus. It's just a waiting game. Is that right? Well, probably if we if we wait long enough, we'll we'll get it maybe over the next few years. But in any particular wave, I think you know each of us can can actually hope to avoid infection. Um, so you know, in the big waves we see overseas um, of Omicron, maybe you know forty, forty five, fifty percent of a of a population has have got it. So that means you know more than half the population typically haven't been infected. Yeah, and a statistic jumped out at me in this uh, piece from the conversation that uh, you co-wrote that, look, even if you share a household with an infected person, the risk of catching the virus is somewhere between 15 and 50%. That's right. So there's, um, you know, places that have got um, really good um, monitoring, um, places like the UK, Denmark, South Korea, um, where they're, they're, you know, really surveying what what happens to a, a large portion of the population. They can, they've, you know, watched a case um, within a household. They've got everyone else in the household to test over the um, following week or two, and just counted how many infections occur. And uh, uh, it turned out a lot of the people who are susceptible in a household don't actually end up getting infected. And mm. there's 
and it's, it's not always just chance, right? You can take measures to to stop these things. So you can, you know, isolate people within a household if you've got enough room. You can um, you can wear masks. You can use separate bathrooms. That sort of thing. They all help. Yeah, well, that's interesting because that has answered a question that a lot of people have asked me personally. I was, you're in the media. Do you know that, uh, uh, is it a given that if I'm in a household with someone with COVID-19 that I will uh, be uh, infected myself? And you're saying, well, no. Uh, let's bring our panellists and Jo McCarroll. Uh, well, I guess I'm just thinking about people I know who are in the position where they've got um, more than one child. And so they are not wanting to face multiple periods of isolation, um, which is kind of a different question. But if you have three or four kids and you isolate for each of them, that could be really disruptive to things like your potential to earn your living or, you know, your, your life in a bigger way. Um, so I don't know if you've got any advice for people like that, uh, David, but um, I, I have sympathy for them because I think that's a difficult situation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a d- difficult situation, and um, so I, I think some of the some of the um, the advice around isolation um, has changed recently, um, and that could you know it would mean that um, basically you you know you follow one period of isolation, um, but not multiple periods of isolation if you're just kind of a household contact. Um, mm. So that could reduce the numbers. Um, but I, I guess what I would say to those people is that, you know, um, kids coming into a house with um, COVID, um, I think the research I've seen um, suggests that they are potentially um, even less likely than other members of their household to infect others. Um, and so, you know, just getting them to practice sort of basic hygiene, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids are very happy to wear a mask. Um, you know, if, if you've got space, um, put them in their own room. And just particularly for that highly infectious, you know, there's a few days where kids are really highly infectious or anyone is really highly infectious. And if you can avoid infection during that few days, um, then, you know, hopefully you can avoid it altogether. All right. Dean Hall, let's bring you in. Well, look, I am not a psychologist, but not being something has never stopped me from having an opinion before. So I wonder if this whole... Can I, I've heard it at work as well, people saying, oh, you know, it's sort of inevitable now. I wonder if a lot of those kind of statements, even when I've said it myself, is sort of more of a social cohesion thing. Sometimes it's just a way of bonding to sort of downplay the problem a little bit. But but I think it's important to sort of catch that in your mind and, you know, I'd be very interested to see what the, the doctor thinks about people are really bad with numbers because I know with the HIV um, pandemic, like, um, sorry, epidemic, um, people, people will look at numbers really bad. People will think like they might win lotto, but think, oh, you know, 15, 20% isn't a very high high chance of getting it. And so that's where I think, you know, for me, I, I try and rely on those experts in terms of interpreting what those numbers mean and the things that we need to do. Because I just think, by default, we can be pretty bad at interpreting probabilities. Mm, got a comment on that, David? Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely true. And you know, people um, people don't people are known to be very poor at assessing risk in everyday life. Um, and so, yeah, there's, especially at the moment, there's a, a huge amount of COVID out there. 
there's a there's a high chance that you know in everyday interactions you're going to be exposed but um, I guess the point is that the, the the fact you're exposed doesn't necessarily mean you get infected if you're taking good precautions. So, you know, if you're keeping your interactions in well-ventilated areas or outside, if you're wearing a mask, um, all these things can um, help help you reduce the chances of um, getting infected. And, it's, and, you know, nothing is absolutely fail-safe, but, you know, all of those measures we take um, just help reduce that chance and make us um, make us overall safer. And, and I guess isn't that a big part of it? Um, that that a lot of it is about surviving it as a population, not just as an individual. So may, maybe you know the chances that you're going to be okay um, with COVID, but some people won't be, and not overloading the health system. That's right. I mean, there's a lot of you know everyone's got a lot of anecdotes about. Um, about COVID now, you know, there's, there's some people um, come out with it, come out of it completely unscathed, and um, some people um, are much worse off. And the thing is, that there's so many people infected now. You know, um, the, the the small fraction of people who are going to get seriously ill with it is actually a very large number of people. And that's um, you know, so that's why we've got to kind of reduce the overall numbers who have it. Um, to take the pressure off mm. our, our health system. Good on you, David. Kia ora. Thanks for being with us on the program. Uh, that is uh, Dr. David Welch, uh, lecturer in the Department of Computer Science at Auckland University. Very interesting article, actually. It's on the conversation. He wrote it with his colleague, uh, Nigel French, just about uh, that uh, notion of should we treat Omicron as an inevitability that, you know, we're all going to catch it. And a lot of people have, has brought, have raised it with me, uh, and that answer is no. So that, again, uh, that, those stats, uh, that even if you share a household with an infected person, the risk of catching the virus is somewhere between 15 and 50%. Mark says, just finished isolating with COVID uh, with my partner in the same house. One bathroom, I slept in a different room, avoided common areas as much as possible, wore a mask and cleaned the toilet and basin after each use, didn't prepare food for her. She tested negative day 10. 24 past four, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National, Joe McCarroll uh, and Dean Hall with me uh, this Thursday afternoon. Well, putting the call out to the nation, someone is desperately seeking Sharon. Can you help? The owner of the Japanese restaurant in Palmerston North wants to get in touch with this mysterious Sharon to write a small mistake it's a small mistake, but it's nonetheless a mistake. With us is Barbara Taniyama from Yatai, Japanese uh, Izakara restaurant, uh, who's with me now. Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you, Wallace. Very Lo- much appreciate you helping. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure. Who's Sharon? Sharon. All I know, Sharon, is her first name. And I know she must be a working woman. She always comes in nicely dressed and is a regular takeaway medium chicken curry customer for some years. That's all I know. So being very, very difficult trying to track down someone when you have such little detail about them. All right. So Sharon, she likes her medium chicken curry. Good choice on Friday night. Why are you looking for her? Uh, now, almost going to be four weeks tomorrow. I came out the front of the restaurant to see a, a beginner at the cash register. I was 
immediately glanced at the person he was serving and I saw a stressed look on that regular lady's face and I quickly assessed the situation and found that um, he was mischarging her order as well. And I, I quickly put it right, made apologies, so sorry, Leah. And, and she said to me, you should check the lady before me, Barbara, and she didn't look very happy. And I heard her say, I've never paid that kind of price before. And, oh. um, and I thought, oh, my gosh, my heart's done, of course. And all I knew was Sharon by the name of Sharon and no more. But I thought, well, hopefully she'll come back and awaited. informed every staff member, should Sharon come back? This is the situation. This is what we have to do. We have to refund her money and give her a free chicken curry as an apology. What? A free chicken curry as well? Okay, so this new <laughs> staff member charged her 22 bucks for a $14 takeaway many weeks ago. Uh, I've got some advice for you, Barbara. Yes? Keep the eight bucks. <laughs> Keep I'm it. Old, I'm old school and it doesn't sit right. I, it sits okay with me. Anyway, I've never... I've actually had a few people call and pretend they're Sharon and say they would like a tea. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't found the right Sharon, and I, I just really want to do what's right. And, and keeping someone's money, you know, charging them almost 60% more than what we should just doesn't sit right with me. Yes, but you're a small business. I reckon you should take the gold when you can find it. Joe, uh, a highly moral business person, obviously by this wonderful Japanese restaurant. Uh, uh, What do you think Barbara should do? Oh, Barbara, I think um, it's great that you're trying to find Sharon. I... When I was at university, I worked in um, a pharmacy and it was when FPOS was quite new and someone got $40 um, cash with their order and I didn't give it to them. And I could, to this day, tell you their name. And if I ever come upon them, I will give them $40 because I think, you know, I still remember feeling so terrible about it. Um, So I'll definitely come in next time I'm in Palmerston North for a chicken curry, though. So hopefully that'll uh, put a bit of business your way. Well, that'd be, that'd be lovely because things have absolutely died here. I imagine it's the same around the country, but oh. really, really dead. Well, that's why I reckon you should keep your $8. And I know that if Dean Hall was the owner of the, your restaurant, he'd definitely keep it, wouldn't you, Dean? Oh, that's right, definitely. You're in for, I think you've got that Spartacus-type situation, right? Everybody's jumping up saying, I'm, I'm Sharon, I'm Sharon. We're all a little Sharon. But I hope you're ready for a fight because Sharon might not want the money back. I know with places I go to regularly, if there's a mistake, mm-hmm. I we it's probably the biggest disagreements I end up having. Is uh, I know there's a local convenience store, localito here in uh, um, for the viaduct that I go to, and once or twice it's been a mistake, and I, I we almost came to blows them trying to give me my money back. I'm like, nope, the guy's trying to. Put me an extra item in my uh, in my uh, bag, and um, it's that very sort of Kiwi thing, right? So you, you might have a fight on your hands, even giving Sharon the money back. Oh, oh, I, I, I know that to do far. It. You'll just cr- cross that bridge when it comes to it. Yes, I just extra I chicken. Well, all the best, Barbara, and uh, thank you for being so delightfully honest and uh, really all the very best for uh, – look, I hope business picks up really, really soon because uh, it, uh, it's got it right. Um, that is Barbara Taniyama from uh, Yatai Japanese Izakaya Restaurant uh, in Palmerston North. And uh, if you maybe wanted to go and uh, get a, a medium chicken curry – why don't you? Uh, so if you, uh, Sharon, if you are a panel fan and you listen to this, go back and get your $8. Uh, 
you're on the panel, RNZ National. Just briefly before we go to headlines, uh, a little bit of feedback because uh, quite a few of you talked about soap. Uh, Paul in Pukanui says, Wallace, I can't believe you do not understand the benefits of liquid soap. Uh, it doubles as shampoo, does it? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> does it? Yeah, uh, and yes, I live in the country. Um, uh, Andrew says, Kia ora, Wallace, I'm working my way through my late auntie's supply of soap. It'll take me another four to five years. Uh, but Jen says, liquid soap is generally worse environmentally. The idea that a cake of soap is unhygienic is a myth used to market liquid soap. Uh, 